navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. First, I want to give a big warm welcome to my friend Hadley. Thank you for uh, joining the program today. Uh, I've been a solo operator on these series for so long, so it's nice to have you here with me. And uh, for all of you who have not had the opportunity, Hadley, uh, she's in Rochester and she just, she knows her stuff. She's my go-to, especially in all federal court matters. I get those late night calls and emails, Hadley, what do I do? What do I do? So she's my go-to and I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing from her today. I want to remind everybody that there are great benefits to being a member of the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers. Uh, We're really glad that we can give all of our programming and CLEs uh, for free to everybody. Uh, As far as I know, we will continue to do so forever. Uh, But if you are not a member, I encourage you to be a member. It's not expensive. You get a discount from just having attended this CLE or a prior CLE. And there's lots of great benefits available to members that you don't get if you're not one, such as access to you know a huge list of on-demand prior CLEs where you can get credit. So if you haven't caught um, part one yet, uh, you can catch it on demand if you're a member. Uh, you can also catch it at the mentor uh, esq.com and at the Mentor ESQ podcast, uh, where I have the prior, all the prior CLEs I've ever given are there, and you can get credit for the ones uh, that we're doing now. So I encourage you to do that. You can catch up and catch it uh, later as well as a refresher if you want. Now, today we are going to talk about um, claims, letters, notices, and commencing the action. In part one, we spoke about in a catastrophic auto accident case that it's really important to do an an investigation because you have to get all the details, all the data, all the information and find out who are the potential tort feasors, who can you bring a claim against, who's got insurance coverage, is it a products case, Uh, was there something wrong with the truck, Uh, was it defectively designed, was it an airbag issue? Uh, Was it more than just negligence of a driver? Uh, Was the driver drunk who caused it? Is there potentially a dram shop action to be brought? So you really need to explore all of that. And frankly, investigation uh, just continues, in my experience, throughout the whole case. That's what we do. I think good personal injury attorneys were kind of like detectives. We're always peeling away the layers, trying to get answers, trying to find things. And so we're always investigating, and that will continue after you start the lawsuit. But generally speaking, after the initial investigation that we talked about in part one, you're going to be ready to, you know, start moving the case towards litigation. Complex cases involving catastrophic injuries and multiple defendants are highly unlikely to settle early on in in the case uh, by claim letters. So you're, you're looking at a litigation and you want to make sure that once you have think you've identified all the potential tortfeasors, you got to get them on notice. You got to start sending letters of representation. You got to check for statute of limitations. You got to send out all kinds of letters. So we're going to talk about the letter writing campaign first. 
Uh, just to give an overview, Hadley will uh, hopefully just jump in at any time uh, during today's program. Uh, and specifically, I've asked her to talk when we uh, in more detail about you know the venue choices and federal court litigation. Uh, for those of you who have not seen it, Hadley and I teamed up, I think it was sometime last year or the year before, and we did a program for the Academy on Zoom on how to litigate a personal injury case in federal court. So the whole uh, CLE that we did was on federal court practice. We're not going to get into all of that, but we're going to talk about the pros and cons and what you want to think about and pleading and that type of stuff. Uh, Hadley, anything you want to touch base on before we get into the letter writing campaign? No, let's get started. That's great. Thanks, Andrew. All right, great. So what I recommend doing, what I like to do is, first of all, once you have identified all the potential tort feasors, you have to send them letters of representation. You have to let them know that you and or your firm are representing your client who's been seriously injured in an accident. And you have to identify uh, the, who their insured is, what connection they have to the case, why they're receiving this letter. Uh, if it's an insurance company you're aware of, you send it right to them. If it's an individual or a company and you're not familiar with who their insurance company is at this stage of the, of the case, then you send them the letter of representation and ask them to turn it over immediately to their insurance representative to contact you. Um, in the materials for today, uh, if you've attended any of my programs, you know I really don't like to go through materials unless it's super important to something I'm addressing. I don't plan on going through the materials today, but what I did put in today's materials are samples for you. Samples of letters, which the type of letters we're going to talk about now. Uh, samples of complaints in state court and federal court, sample of a verified claim for New York State Court of Claims. So again, I just want to give the disclaimer and caveat, it does have clients' names, it does have some information, nothing that isn't found on public record, but these materials are meant for you in this private program that we're doing to help you feel free to copy and paste, use language, that's what it's there for, uh, to, to help you in building your case and in handling a catastrophic injury case. So let's go through the initial letter writing and notice letters that you're going to want to send out. Every single tortfeasor you've identified in your investigation needs to get a letter from you. So in a heavy-duty auto accident, let's take, I'm going to continue to talk about two cases that I brought up in part one. Uh, one was brought in federal court and the other one was brought in state and in the court of claims. So the first one, the one in federal court, uh, is the Isquidero case, and you'll see some letters in the complaint and the materials. Uh, plaintiff's first names are both Matthew in both of these cases. So Matthew Isquidero uh, was in a car, and he was coming around the backside on a major highway of a tractor trailer. There was contact on the back corner of the trailer. His car rolled over off an embankment, very seriously injured. The other case um, is Matthew Ferber, and in that case, he was a backseat passenger in a one-car accident on Route 17 and a little further north of New York uh, City, and uh, the driver was drunk, was speeding, uh, went off the road, crashed into a guardrail. The guardrail penetrated the car, killed the drunk driver, severed the legs of my client, and ejected him out of the car in the middle of the roadway. So in both of those cases, initially we had to identify who, who's a potential tortfeasor, who to send the letters to. So in the Escudero, the truck case, 
we sent a letter to the, uh, the registered owner and operator as it appeared on the registration that was in the police report. And we looked for any other entities that may have owned this trucking company, whether there was a lessor, whether there was multiple owners. Um, so we sent claim letters to that trucking company. Um, then we looked into whether or not we thought it was a case against the state, whether there was an issue with the guide rails or guardrails, uh, and we just didn't see that as a result of our investigation. Once we found out the insurance company for the owner, the operator, and the company, we sent letters of representation to the insurance company. You're always going to want to send it to the insurance company, to the bodily injury claims representative. And you'll see a sample letter in the materials uh, where you indicate that you're representing uh, the your plaintiff and um, that you want them to contact you and advise you as to the policy limits. You're entitled to get that. You put it in writing. And although sometimes you'll get a little pushback, uh, you, will, you don't need to wait until putting into suit. I've always found that you work hard enough, you push hard enough. As long as you send a letter of representation first, they need that before they'll talk to you about the case. Send, of send a letter of representation to the insurance company, to the bodily injury adjuster, ask them to acknowledge your representation, to acknowledge the claim that your client is bringing against the policy and to advise you of the policy limits and whether or not there's any umbrella or excess insurance coverage. Because don't forget, we are constantly looking for coverage, extra insurance coverage, because we're talking about catastrophic injuries, which I've indicated we're going to talk about death as well, right? These are the cases that you're going to have big damages. You're going to want to find out coverage. And so you're going to ask for that whenever you're in a letter writing campaign with an insurance company, what the policy limits are, asking for excess and umbrella coverage. They may not know it at the time. You have to reach out to the insured. Sometimes the insurance company that covers the the tortfeasor's automobile may not be the same one that's providing umbrella or excess insurance. So they would have to check and see if there's another company providing that. And then you would find out, get letters of affidavits of no excess if there isn't any or, or no umbrella coverage. You'll want to send out a letter of representation to the host vehicle, the vehicle that your client was in. Sometimes it's the tortfeasor, like in the Ferber case. Sometimes it's their own car, like in the Escudero case because no fault is gonna cover their first medical, uh, first $50,000 in medical bills, at least here in New York State, that's how it works. No fault is different in different jurisdictions. And I know some of you are not in New York State, certainly a lot of people listening to the podcast are in, in states throughout the country. So if you do have some type of no fault policy provision in automobile policies or personal injury protection coverage, PIP called PIP, um, that is New York and generally everywhere. That is the vehicle that your client is in. And you want to notify them of your representation timely and ask for whatever forms need to be filled out so you can get those filled out and submit them timely. And I say timely because if you don't get that paperwork in, then they can disclaim payment, okay? So the lawyers need to get the forms in, the treating doctors need to get the forms in. And just as a brief aside, if your client is a pedestrian who suffers a catastrophic injury from being struck by a car, bus, truck, van, it will be that car, bus, truck, or van's no fault that will cover the pedestrian. That's how the law works in New York State and probably in most other jurisdictions. So you're going to want to get all those letters out at the, that's the basic, that's just to the vehicle, 
the bodily injury, and the tort fees. Go ahead, Hadley. I, think I just wanted to add to, to put in the letters at least to the tort feeser uh, and the tort feeser's insurance company is preservation notices, right? So you want them to preserve not just the vehicle, but also my preservation notices cover everything from text messages to emails, anything that could be relevant evidence in a lawsuit. Um, and I want to put them on notice of that, you know, as soon as possible. Turn off any auto-delete functions on email, turn off any auto-delete functions on text. Stuff like that's really important because you want them to be preserving the evidence from the date of the accident forward. That's a great point. And preservation should always be in these letters. You need to identify what, if any, evidence you think will be probative in your case. And you want to put that in there as part of the preservation. So all the items Hadley just spoke about, uh, many times there will be, um, you're going to ask them to preserve the vehicle involved. If a car is totaled, what generally happens is uh, the police call tow company. They have it towed to a local, you know, uh, facility where it's kept. It could be with the police. It could be with an impound yard. It could be at a, at a transportation, a tow company's facility. Then the insurance company for that vehicle, the property damage claims representatives usually go and they determine it a total loss and then they destroy it or they take it. Um, you need to have that vehicle. You need to preserve it. You need to find out where it is. You need to send letters to whoever has it, whoever owns it, wherever you think it is, saying we want you to preserve this vehicle. We need access to it. Contact us to arrange for that. Uh, because in a serious case, there may be an issue with the brakes. You're going to want to have an automotive engineer uh, investigate and inspect the vehicle. You're going to want to photograph the vehicle. It could be a product liability issue. So there may be an issue with the airbags, with the with anything in the vehicle. And you need to have that vehicle, right? So you need them to preserve it. It's not always easy to do. Uh, we've had to send investigators to find out where it is. Then you've got to do a letter writing campaign to get authority to do things with it, sometimes from the owner. Uh, but you can do it. Sometimes you'll have to pay for storage. We've done that before where they say, yeah, hey, you want to leave it at my, uh, my tow facility? You know, you got to pay 100 bucks a month uh, for as long as it's here and we'll store it for you. So whatever it is, preserve it, send the preservation letters. Similarly, uh, let's talk about a dram shop case because in the Matt Ferber case, uh, we were aware that the driver who died was intoxicated. They, they drew blood from him at the scene. He was well over the limit. So we investigated and found out all the, he, it turns out he was at three different um, alcohol serving facilities prior to driving that night. Uh, it started off at a Mexican restaurant. Then they went to a bowling alley with a bar. And then they had a nightcap on top of that at another bar. So we sent off letters of representation to all of those facilities. We sent preservation letters within that claim letter. You can do them separately or have all the language in saying we wanted videos. We wanted receipts of purchases, you know, everything we could think of. Identify the names of the bartenders, the doormen, the devices of any used for checking IDs, all kinds of stuff. So samples of those letters are also in the materials that we sent out. So get out all your claim letters and get out all your um preservation notices to all those entities. Did I miss anything in that regard, Hadley? I don't think so. No, that covered it. Now, in addition to those entities, the, all the potential tort feasors, um, you want to consider and you must ask your client 
uh, if your client is the injured plaintiff, about SUM coverage. Now, SUM always, just by saying those words, I know some questions are going to show up. And uh, everyone's got lots of questions. I did, uh, because we had a lot of questions last year during my series uh, on SUM, I did a separate one-off on SUM coverage, how that works. So you can find that, again, at the Academy's website on demand or from my website, thementoresq.com, or on the podcast. But basically, SUM is additional coverage that you may be able to have your client avail themselves of uh, if it's more than the other coverage that's available. So find out if your client has SUM coverage. Send a letter no matter what, even if it's minimal, even if it, you're not sure if it's going to be in, come into play. Send a letter uh, identifying the policy, letter of representation, telling the insurance company that your client has SUM coverage with them and you are hereby making a claim for the um, policy limits of the SUM policy. Okay, This way, again, you've put them on notice. The worst thing that would happen is that you get underway, you start litigating the case, and then many months later, you say, oh, well, we've got no coverage here. Oh, does the client have SUM coverage? And then by the time you send a letter to say, hey, you know, there's a provision in this policy that says you're going to timely notify us if you're involved in any accident. You've been off notifying the whole world and you didn't notify us. This accident happened five, six months ago. Um, we're going to disclaim. And if you had time as the lawyer to do it early on and you didn't do it, and now there's coverage that may be disclaimed because you failed to do it, guess what, folks? Now you're in the crosshairs of a potential malpractice claim. So, Andrew, Jennifer, if yep. I'm wrong on this, but I think there are instances where, uh, you know, someone holds the underlying policy and you've got an umbrella policy, the umbrella policy with a different company can have some coverage. Yeah, yeah. You exactly. need to be careful to search down all all potential sources of some coverage. Yep, that's a great point. You know, um, I personally, because of what I do for a living growing up in this, I've got more insurance coverage than you can imagine. You know, I've got umbrella SUM, I've got umbrella this, umbrella that. Um, so, and it and as Hadley says, it could be a totally different insurance company. So you need to really, it should be part of your intake process with your clients, if you're a plaintiff's attorney, you know, do you have insurance coverage? Do you have anything other than this auto policy? Do you have something through work, perhaps? Uh, I have a case right now where my client, uh, we found a million-dollar SUM policy through her employer because the vehicle she was driving was her employer's. So you want to explore every policy. Tell them, just send me every policy. Send me your homeowner. Send me your umbrella. Send me everything you have. And then you look through it, and if you don't feel comfortable reviewing an insurance policy, uh, there are plenty of lawyers uh, that you can reach out to who would be happy to help you, I'm sure. Reach out to me or Hadley. Uh, we can look at it. We can put you in touch with lawyers who specialize in insurance coverage work. There are many who lecture for the academy as well. Um, you just want to explore everything in these big cases. You, you have to leave no stone unturned, okay? So you're going to send out an SUM claim letter. So you want to make sure you get that out as well. And as I spoke about in part one, when you're signing up the case and you're off and running, copy your client. Uh, I give extra credit to anybody who could type into the chat my two mantras um, before I finish saying them now. But the first mantra that you've heard if you've ever listened to anything I talk about is preparation, preparation, preparation in everything that we do. The second mantra 
inform your client. And the best way to do that is CC them on all these letters. It's really easy. Scan them all in, attach them as a PDF, shoot your client an email and say, we just sent all these letters out. I just wanted you to see what went out. Keep a copy for your files. Okay. And they're like, oh, all right, my lawyer's on it. You know, let's see what happens. Just let them know. We expect to hear back. Hopefully within the next three, four weeks on all this, we'll keep you posted. Um, so you're going to want to do that. Now, it's rare in a catastrophic injury case, but sometimes the tort feasors don't call in the accident to their own insurance company. They don't notify their insurance company. If any one of us uh, in this webinar is, God forbid, in an automobile accident, whether we think it's the other person's fault or not, you need to immediately notify your insurance company, right? That's your policy requires that. Then they will set up the, the, the claim in the file. Um, so what we will do is once we find out who the insurance company is by running the plate or if it's on the police report, uh, if we find out before getting a letter or having them contact us, we call up the insurance company, just hit the button to report a new claim. They'll put you through. You'll give them the tortfeasor's name, license plate number. They'll look it up in the system. Nine times out of 10, they'll say, oh yeah, we have a claim open here. Okay. And what's your name? Who are you? Send me a letter of representation. Give me some information. They may ask for a police report. It's totally cool, by the way, to include copies of the police report if you have it with all these letters. Um, again, I'm a big proponent of giving your adversaries, that means defense counsel of your plaintiff and insurance adjusters, all the information they're going to need. So give them the police report, give them medicals if you have them early on, give it all up uh, so they can start seeing how serious a case this is. All right. I think that part of the reason for doing that, Andrew, early and maybe even getting a demand out early is so they set the reserve right on the insurance end, right? Because the adjuster is going to set what they think the potential value of this case is. And it's kind of hard to move them off of that once they've set it. And if they're setting it too low, you're, you know, that's how you, that's, how you potentially end up at trial. So getting them to set an appropriate reserve right off the bat is always a good thing. And now you see why Hadley's such a great lawyer, because I do believe in part one, we did talk about reserves and what that means and why it's important. And Hadley put her finger right on it, uh, that you, the insurance company, when they originally set up the claim, they have to set a, a, a reserve amount. They have to put aside an amount thinking that it'll cover the claim. And so if you have a potential seven-figure case, but they think it's a soft tissue because you haven't told them about the surgery or you haven't given them any information or medicals, they think it's a little fender bender, they set the reserves at 200000 and then you're asking for a million dollars later on, your defense counsel is going to say, sorry, you know, it's a problem. This adjuster set the reserves low. I don't know what it's going to take to get these reserves changed now. It's a real problem. So that's a great point. In addition to sending these letters, you also want to be aware of any statutes specific to your case that may require an early notice of claim. Uh, if you're a New York City practitioner, you're very familiar with the requirement of filing a claim with New York City or any of New York City's agencies within 90 days of the happening of the accident. Uh, so, and then a year and 90 days from the date of the accident for filing suit. So you want to get that claim letter uh, rather, the notice of claim filed, the forms are found online. It's very easy, but be aware of that. Look to see wherever you are in New York State and most likely in other jurisdictions throughout the country, if your case is against a municipal agency, uh, whether it's a city, 
town, a county, or a governmental agency, uh, federal, maybe it's the post office or the VA center. Whenever you're dealing with the government on the biggest level of federal down to the smallest town, there is usually a statute requiring early notice as a prerequisite to filing a lawsuit. So if it's not all private individuals, make sure that you, you look up, you research your local uh, statutes and get those notices in early. And be aware, some places that you wouldn't expect uh, that uh, are part of a government entity actually are. In New York, I recently learned Hunter College is part of the New York State system. Uh, there are many uh, hospitals that are part of the New York City health and hospital system. So you're always going to, if it's a hospital medical malpractice case, uh, which is aside from this series topic, but just look for that, okay? Because you're, you're not going to want to blow a statute. That's our obligation as lawyers to be familiar with that. Now, this is going to segue into capacity to bring a lawsuit, capacity to bring a lawsuit. When you're dealing with a catastrophic injury, um, where it's a personal injury or a death that results, you are more likely than not going to be in a situation where you need a guardian uh, for an incapacitated person. For example, if the person gets so badly injured that they're in a coma uh, or that they have a brain injury, uh, they can't take care of their own affairs, uh, then they're going to need a guardian appointed uh, to handle their daily activities and finances and to have authority to litigate claims on behalf. Many times the family will put that into motion before they get to you. Uh, but if not, then uh, I would recommend finding a specialist. There are attorneys that specialize in handling guardianship proceedings. I don't do it. Don't ask me any questions about how to get guardians appointed. Uh, because I don't do that. I bring in a specialist, make sure everything done properly. You want to make sure that when they get the court order appointing them as the guardian, that it's specifically line items, all the, the areas that they have the legal authority to handle on behalf of the incapacitated person, including hiring lawyers, uh, filing lawsuits, and all of that. Um, in addition to getting a guardian appointed for someone who can't handle the case themselves and doesn't have the competence. In a death case, you are going to need a legal representative of the decedent's estate to bring the case. Just because it's a spouse uh, who, who wants to bring the case because their spouse passed away in the accident, or just because it's the only remaining child left, um, there's no automatic legal capacity to bring a case for someone who dies. You have to get that one of two ways. The person dies leaving a will then that will can be probated. And in that will, uh, they will point, appoint somebody to be the executor. That's what people do in their wills. They, they name someone to be the executor of their will. And then that will gets probated. Again, don't ask me. I don't do it. I retain a specialist in surrogate's court, make sure everything's done correctly. And then you get that person appointed as the legal representative of the estate through the probate process. They become the executor. And usually there's no restrictions on settlement. Once they're the point of the executor, they can act on behalf of the estate. They can sign releases. They can settle the case. They don't have to go back to court. More likely than not, um, you will be handling a situation where there was no will left. Uh, very few people actually go out of their way to get wills, unfortunately. Um, but when you run into that situation, which you will if you're handling a death case, 
um, then you have to go some additional steps. You have to, first of all, identify who wants to bring the case on behalf of the estate. Usually it's best to be the spouse if it's someone uh, whose partner or spouse passed away in the accident, uh, the surviving spouse or partner to bring the case makes usual sense. Um, sometimes if it's a really elderly person who passes away, it'll be one of their children who will handle it. Um, and if God forbid it's a, it's a young child or a minor, then of course it's usually uh, the parent uh, who will be bringing the case. Uh, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, there's sort of a, there's a natural distribution chain of distributees in the EPTL, the estates, powers, and trust laws that, uh, that control here. Again, I'm not an expert in that, but usually my understanding is you go to the spouse, and if it's not the spouse, you go to the children, and if there are no children, then you go to the parents. Um, but if there are surviving distributees, uh, if they sign something waiving and allowing and not fighting for letters of administration, who's going to be the administrator, um, then you get that person appointed. It's a pain in the butt. You can do it yourself. There's forms. The surrogate court usually is okay with working with you, depending where you are, what county you're in. Um, but you can hire a specialist to do it for you. Uh, it's a process, and it takes a while. But ultimately, you will get letters of administration, which will authorize the administrator to be the plaintiff, to bring the case. Uh, and that's who becomes your client. They then need to sign your retainer, because even though they've hired you, whether it's the spouse or the child or the parent, um, technically the retainer doesn't mean anything until they get appointed. So, and technically these letters where you're saying you represent the estate, um, until you get final approval, you're not the true representative, but that's okay. You can send letters saying you represent the family, saying that uh, someone who's the proposed administrator. Um, and there's nothing wrong when you have those calls on the phone uh, with the, the people who you've sent the letters to, to let them know, yep, we're in the process of getting letters of administration, but we're moving ahead. Go ahead, Hadley. And the good news about that, too, is the law in New York and the preservation letters, and particularly when it comes to preserving electronically stored information, it, it is really that once the um, defendant or potential defendants are unnoticed, they may be subject to a lawsuit. That's all it takes. It doesn't have to be that they know a lawsuit's coming, that they know a rep's been appointed. I mean, it just... The standard is really, do you think you're going to be sued? And that goes for the plaintiff, too. Does the plaintiff think they're going to sue? And under those circumstances, as long as you're aware that you may be subject to a lawsuit, you are under an obligation to preserve evidence, and so is the defendant. For our defense counsel friends out there, the minute you get in, I know you guys get pulled into these cases later than you'd like most of the time, but if you get pulled in early, you should send a letter to everybody, all your clients uh, or the insurance companies insureds saying preserve, 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 you know, everything, list it. You want to make sure you're putting them on notice so you're not, no fingers are pointed at you. Those, those letters are referred to as litigation holds and you definitely want to get them out no matter what side you represent because it can, the attorneys can be sanctioned for failing, for, for evidence not getting preserved. So it's really, it's important that you do that. Okay. Now, statute of limitations, uh, check the statutes, but Generally speaking, there will be some tolling until, in a death case until uh, the representative is appointed. But I'm always nervous about that. I always like to get stuff filed within the statute of limitations. Don't rely on any tolls. Even if you got to file something as proposed and then you amend it when you get the letters. Also, a, a practice tip, um, you can request expedited letters. 
Um, we have in the past submitted a letter with our uh, petition for letters of administration saying the statute's going to expire soon. Can these be expedited? Make some calls. So do everything you can. But if you don't have letters of administration or if you don't have a legal representative and it looks like the statute may be expiring, file something. You can always amend it um, because that'll help you in the future. So I recommend doing that. That's also where having a surrogate court practitioner comes in handy because they've got all the contacts with the court. We do a lot of it ourselves here. Um, but where we have a situation where we need stuff to move quickly, we'll often use somebody else because he has the ability to pick up the phone and everyone knows who he is over at the surrogate's court. There you go. Yeah. Contacts are key. You know, they, the surrogate court specialists, they know the clerks, they can get yeah. information. Um, so it's, it's money well spent. It really is to bring in a specialist. Um, all right. Time's flying. We got 15 minutes or so left in this program, not including the break uh, or including the break. And just, I think most of you know, we do a Q&A for all your questions you're posting and any additional ones you have. At the 2 o'clock hour, we'll do that from 2 to 2.30. And if you stay on from 2 to 2.30, uh, there'll be another verification code. You could get an extra half credit. So that's where a lot of the good stuff happens in the Q&A. So please stay around. Um, and if we don't get to anything in this first hour, we'll, we'll hit it then. But the next decision you have to make is you're ready to file the lawsuit or you're thinking about filing it. You want to get a complaint going and something that always runs through my mind and is discussed in our firm, and I'm sure Hadley has the same uh, debate with her colleagues, is do we file this in state or federal court if federal court is an option? Now, again, in the series uh, I did last year, the seven part on how to litigate a personal injury case, we talk a lot about the pros and cons of state and federal. In the program Hadley and I did on litigating a case in federal court, we talk about the pros and cons. You can get into federal court on an injury case if there's a federal question, usually don't have that, um, but, but more likely if there's diversity of citizenship. So in the Escudero case, the trucking company was from out of state. So when we looked at that, we said, oh, we've got a New York plaintiff, we've got an out of state defendant. Do we want to bring this in uh, federal court because we have diversity or would we rather bring this in state court? Our client, I forget where he resided, what county at the time, but you look at the county of residence, you look at the county of where the action occurred, uh, all the options under the CPLR in New York, where to bring it, and then you consider federal court. And one, uh, just one thing on diversity, and I think you probably wouldn't want to bring it in federal court for this reason anyway, uh, but the case has to have damages at a minimum of $75,000. So that's the amount in controversy required, even with diversity. To be in federal court, I think you know if your damages are lower than seventy-five thousand, given it's more expensive to litigate in federal court, the odds are you're not going to want to bring it in federal court anyway. But that is another minimum requirement, and you do have to plead that. Yep, and you'll see that in the sample complaint that I put in the materials. So under a jurisdiction section, you have first you, you cite the statute for diversity citizenship. You have to show where the parties' residences are, uh, where they reside. Uh, or principal place of business, what state. Uh, you'll have to indicate things on the filing cover sheet with federal court of where the different parties are located. And you have to allege that the amount of controversy, as Hadley said, is greater than 75000 It means if you end up having a really bad case and you only settle for 25000 or there's no coverage, don't worry, you, won't, you don't get in trouble. But you have to good faith allege that you believe the value of the case and the controversy exceed, the amount of controversy exceeds 75000 Now, I'm going to briefly go through my pro my pro list for why I brought the Escudero case in federal court, and then I'll let Hadley chime in on, on her pros and cons, all right? 
here's my pro list for federal court in a catastrophic automobile accident injury case if you've got diversity. And you will be over 75 if it's a catastrophic injury. First off, um, the rules are the same, whatever district you're in, okay? You're not going to get pulled into an unfriendly local state court or county court venue where you may not uh, be as familiar or comfortable or a local lawyer can tip, tap dance all over you. It's all equal footing in the federal courts. If you've practiced there, you're safe in any federal court because all the rules are the same. Another point, pro. If someone is incapacitated or incompetent, you won't have to go back to the guardianship court to approve the settlement. A federal magistrate or district judge can approve the settlement, and they'll usually approve it within 24 to 48 hours from when you upload it to the server. You don't get put in the abyss and have to wait. Um, Hadley and I had a discussion before the program today about in a death case. Turns out there may be a distinction between the northern and western districts further up and west in New York and downstate, the northern and southern. In my experience, anytime I've had a death case, uh, my magistrate or federal district judge will sign off on a wrongful death compromise order. They have concurrent juris jurisdiction. They have authority. And it saves you from a nightmare of getting sent to surrogate's court. They can do it all. Uh, it's a little different where Hadley, uh, if you want to mention uh, what your understanding is uh, in, in your jurisdiction. Yes, it's been a little bit. So I went back to the local rules today. And in the Western District, it's Local Rule 41. And in the uh, Northern District, it's Local Rule 41.1. Just for the sake of uh, giving you guys rules, the uh, local rule, both in the West or the Eastern and Southern, which are the same set of local rules, uh, is 83.2. So it appears that uh, they are no longer, I, I do know it has happened in federal court in the Western District, but the local rule now reads that uh, they shall basically send, they can approve the attorney's fees, they can approve the disbursements, likely approve the overall amount of the settlement, but they need to then send it uh, for distribution to the surrogate's court. And it appears that the Northern District says essentially the same thing. So, yeah. So no, no more, no more easy, uh, easy distribution through the federal courts in the Western and Northern District. So check your local rules. See what court you're in. If you're downstate, I think you'll be in, in, in safe territory. And it's just great. They they get it done. They get it done fast. Even though state courts have concurrent jurisdiction. Uh, all state court judges like to punt to surrogate's court. Federal court judges aren't too worried about that. Yeah, yeah and up, up here, we can't, we have to go to surrogate court for the distribution, even in state court. They won't. It's just it's a requirement up here. So that's a factor to consider. The other factors, the reason I, I often love federal court is the case is going to move faster than in state court. You're going to get discovery faster. Uh, orders stick. Uh, you don't have to file a motion to compel discovery and wait for seven months for a decision that then gives them another three months to produce. Um, you're going to get great discovery. You're going to get expert discovery if you want it. Um, you're just going to, you're going to be able to move it. The downside, cost, expert discovery, expert depositions, expert reports, you know, but if you know you're bringing in experts and you're spending the money and if it's a big enough case, then I wouldn't let that uh, keep you from doing it. And I, I generally like federal court for big cases like that. What are your thoughts on that, Hadley? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it, I, I agree. I think the nice thing is that now that, that there's changes to the uniform rules in state court, discovery, I'm hoping is going to get better in state court because some of the actual what are the federal rules are now in place in New York. They were in place in the commercial division and now they're in place um, in, in the just state Supreme Court that we practice in. So that's 
that hopefully will improve that. But I agree. And the other thing I think to consider is, you know, is your case really strong? And do you foresee them coming in with experts that you have the potential to, to get excluded under the Daubert standard, which is a more stringent standard than the Fry standard that's going to apply in state court? So, you know, if you think you're going to have a battle of the experts going on and you think that they're going to bring a bunch of hacks in, it may, it very well may be worth, um, worth being in federal court. We did that with a trucking case and their accident reconstructionists got excluded. And we, you know, we knew that they were going to fight it and we knew that that's where it was going to end up. And we were able to get the expert excluded under Daubert. And needless to say, without an expert, the case settled. So that was well worth bringing in federal court and well worth the expenses of going through all that. Exactly. I mean, that's, for the trial, and we would have ended up trial without Daubert. Yeah, that's a great point, Hadley. I mean, you know, we can we can talk a whole nother case about you know motions to preclude experts and the Daubert standards. But if you've practiced in federal court with experts, you become very familiar with it. And there's no pulling the wool over the eyes and, and, and having a state court judge say, oh, it's all fair. Let, you know, cross-examine them, counsel, and uh, make your point that way. Let's see what the jury does. You're like, no, I don't want to cross-examine them because then the jury thinks it's an issue. They shouldn't even, I shouldn't have to say anything. They shouldn't be stepping into this courtroom. They should be getting on that stand. And the federal judges get that. They take yeah. their role as gatekeeper. They're required to be a gatekeeper. They're required to consider Daubert motions. And they, they keep the, the experts that just like to give opinions because they like to give them. I've got a lot of these situations going on on cases I'm handling right now. So you, you hit on a, on a pulse for me, um, Hadley. If you're joining today's course via podcast, the first attendance verification code is POD322. Again, that's POD322. So with just a few minutes left, um, talking about pleading, um, I saw in some of the questions uh, submitted, and we'll address all these momentarily, there's some questions about court of claims pleading. So it's actually, it's not a notice of claim like the city. You just file a verified claim. Um, and I, I enclosed a sample there you can look at. If you do have a case against the court of claims, I wish you well. Uh, it's very hard to be successful in the court of claims uh, for many reasons, including the fact that the, they're defended by the state and um, the judge is appointed by the state and works for the state and, and all that. And there's no jury. Um, but check the court of claims act. Google it, download it, read it 10 times. They'll, they'll give you all the details, what you need to do and how to do it. Just follow the Court of Claims Act. The good thing is, is that that controls everything. So just do that. Um, now, pleading the complaint, I'm going to let Hadley sort of touch base on it. But the one thing that I want to just bring to your attention is throw the kitchen sink in, folks. Throw it all in. Every possible tortfeasor, name them. Every possible cause of action, whether it's just regular negligence and uh, how they operate a motor vehicle, feel free to copy the language and the complaints I have in the materials in the negligence paragraph. You know, failure to use the horn to brakes, to be on the lookout, to see what's there to be seen. Then you have the maintenance stuff. You want to put all of that in in the negligence clause, failure to properly maintain and repair. But then there may be negligent supervision, negligent entrustment. Um, there could be uh, a products case. Uh, where you need breach of warranty, express and implied, manufacturing defect. You could have a dram shop cause of action, which is the general obligations law 11-100 or 11-101, depending on the circumstances. So you're going to want to throw that in. Um, you can do them all in one complaint. If you're in the same court, so you'll see in the Ferber complaint I have attached, that's in a New York State Supreme Court. We have the regular negligence against the owner and operator. 
And then we list all the three facilities that served alcohol as separate causes of action. We put that in there with the general obligations law under the dram shop. Put it all in, put in details. It doesn't hurt because even though you can freely amend pleadings, it's not as easy as it sounds and you have to jump through hoops a lot to do it. Um, if you think there's a punitive element, throw a punitive claim in there too so you don't have to amend it later. It's always better to you know remove it later or not worry about it, but um, put the kitchen sink in, folks. Every cause you can think of, everything, throw it all in. There's nothing wrong with having a robust complaint, so I recommend you do so. Hallie, you have thoughts on pleading? No, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, I don't think there's much more to say about it. Um, you know, be careful in federal court with where you're pleading, you know, with the venue that you're very clear about that you're there because it's the uh, appropriate, because it's the location of the accident, right? Because otherwise in federal court, the plaintiff, the plaintiff's residence means nothing. So you will, you know, if you sue a trucking company out of Arkansas in the wrong district, you're going to get removed to probably Arkansas federal court, or there'll be just a motion to dismiss and then you're stuck. So you just have to be real careful to plead very specifically why you are in that particular federal district court. Um, the only other thing that I think is worth mentioning is um, sometimes it's worth considering motions to consolidate. I just dealt with this in a uh, catastrophic motor vehicle case where the accident occurred up here. Um, the tortfeasor had a passenger who was fairly minimally hurt, unlike my client who was significantly hurt, who was in another vehicle. But in addition to us suing, the uh, passenger also sued. So the passenger sued down in Brooklyn and because she was claiming to be a resident down there six months of the year or whatever, she wasn't in school. Um, and so I worked with actually the defense attorney to get them to transfer the case up here and consolidate it for discovery purposes. So there are things like that you can consider where there are multiple lawsuits going related to the same accident, even if they're in separate, um, separate courts. I'm sure the Brooklyn plaintiff's attorney was really thrilled that you did that to them. Hadley. I have no doubt, especially because it was <laughs> like a $25,000 case. So yeah, I'm sure. They did so, fight no, it. It was entertaining. Yeah. yeah. It's a good point. And on the defense side, you want to consolidate. You want to remove whenever you can. Um, if, if you think that it's a practitioner you see as the plaintiff's lawyer, maybe a solo, maybe not as experienced or specialized, and you have a feeling they may not feel comfortable in federal court, and you have the opportunity to remove it, go for it, you know? That's, I was going to say that, Andrew, when you were speaking earlier, because in the situation where, you know, you're trying to weigh the pros and cons of being in federal court, one of the issues might be that you're just going to end up in federal court anyway, right? If I'm dealing with a trucking company out of Arkansas and the person driving the truck's also from Arkansas, I don't have what we refer to as diversity destroyers. I don't have a citizen of New York State to put on the other side of the V for purposes of staying in federal court or state court, excuse me. So I can file in state court. They're going to remove it. I can try to get it remanded. Chances are I'm going to end up in federal court anyway. And there's, you know, a month or two of delay. So to me in that situation, I just assume file in federal court and call it a day. Great. So that's, you know, that's our thoughts on pleading. Um, I would recommend we, we talked in how to litigate a personal injury case series last year was a seven parter. And we talked about, pros and cons of state and federal. We also talked about process service. Uh, so look at that. You want to make sure you serve it properly. We're not going to get into that now, but obviously you got to serve your complaint properly, whether it's in state or federal. Um, and if you miss that, you can catch it on the Academy's website. If you're a member, you can also go to the mentoresq.com uh, to find 
that uh, information in the podcast where we talked about process of service uh, and listen to it on the podcast. So this is going to conclude the first hour. Um, I'll, I'm going to thank you all at the end of the, 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 this coming half hour. But for those of you who are jumping off and don't want to stay, uh, I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank Hadley uh, for participating in it. And uh, next month uh, will be part three. Uh, it's going to be great. It's April 6th on a Wednesday at 1 o'clock. And we're going to talk about experts, which is just awesome. I love, love, love working with talking about experts, especially in a catastrophic injury case. So about all the great liability experts you can bring in, all the damages experts, that's the key. That's where that's where you, you build your case is, is with the experts there. So we'll talk about that then. So I hope to see you all in the next uh, installment in April. But let's get to the Q&A. Um, I'm going to pull them up and I'm going to throw some to Hadley and I'll take some for myself. Let's see what we got. And we'll try and hit on all of them for everybody. So the first one, uh, hey Val. Uh, Val's asking uh, about a case in Brooklyn uh, where a pedestrian is killed by an MTA bus um, and the driver alludes to some suspicious Dodge Ram truck, uh, su suggesting that maybe it was the suspicious truck and not the bus. Of course, the old wasn't me defense. Um, now, uh, NYPD says there wasn't any other vehicle involved. Uh, you put MVAIC, which I believe stands for the Motor Vehicle Accident Indemnification Corporation. For those of you who don't know that, it's basically a $25,000 fund that you can apply to if there is zero insurance available uh, from the tortfeasors, like in hit-run cases or in uninsured driver's cases. It's not fun to deal with. Um, this doesn't sound like an MVAIC case to me, Val. I would proceed ahead against the MTA. Um, you know, take the deposition of the bus driver. I would do a non-party deposition of the detectives, get a court ordered, let them show there was nobody else. And your argument is that's nonsense. Uh, and just work up your investigation and go directly against the bus. I don't see this as an MVAIC case. And I think you should have time. Just check the statutes for filing with MVAIC uh, for doing that. Um, all right. The next one, Patricia's saying about police accident report insurance codes that you can look them up. There's also official contact info, but not how accurate that is. Hallie, you want to talk about DMV codes and police reports and how you find out who the insurance company is? Uh, I'm going to be completely candid with you. My assistant does all that for me. I've never had to all do right. it. And all she right. is at it. Um, but I still think just be careful because not all the insurance coverage, you know, all the companies insuring, the, the company insuring the car, yes, may be on there, but you may not have the umbrella, the sum. So you just, you need to be, you need to be careful not to solely rely on that. Yeah. What um, Pat's referring to, Patricia, I'm sorry, what Patricia's referring to is that um, on a regular accident report, accident report, not one of the real detailed accident investigation multi-page reports, but just the, the basic MV-104 report where they talk about, you know, they identify the parties, the drivers, the basic information. There is a section that says INS code. Look for that and there's a number under it. Then all you got to do is Google DMV codes, New York State, and then you pick category 1 to 100, 100 to 200, click on the one that the number falls into, and you'll find it. And there's a code associated with an insurance company. It gives the phone number to call them to call a claim. That's the easiest way. Sometimes there'll be insurance policy information listed on, on the second page of the report. Look for that. Sometimes it's not listed or it's a bad insurance code, in which case you just got to start making calls. Try and call the tort directly. Nothing wrong. No litigation started. Get a phone number. Call them up. Say, hey. 
who's your insurance company? You're in this accident. You got to let me know. Um, and that's how you, you track it down. Okay. Um, thank you, Martin, for pointing out that CUNY is under the state, not the city. Even though it's City University of New York, it's a state entity, so you need to file in court of claims. Uh, again, Jonathan's asking about court of claims. That's a whole separate thing. So download, download the Court of Claims Act. That's my best recommendation and read it and follow it. Because literally, that is how any motions to dismiss your case, they'll say you failed to comply with rule number or whatever, subdivision number, uh, and failed to fill in this blank. Um, there's a whole, I won't get into it, but Court of Claims is a, it can be a minefield. So just follow the Court of Claims Act. That's my recommendation. Um, thank you for someone pointing out you can get temporary letters of administration. So it's good to look into that as well. Uh, thank you. Um, and then uh, David is asking, uh, does a proposed administrator of a decedent's estate have the capacity to be a plaintiff and commence a lawsuit? The answer is no. They don't, they haven't been appointed. They have no capacity. Um, I like to put proposed in as a placeholder uh, when you're running out of all other options if you don't have a legal guardian just to have something filed. Then by the time hopefully your adversary is making a motion or whatever, then hopefully you'll have letters, you amend it, and you could change the language and you go from there. And they certainly can't claim they weren't on notice of the lawsuit within the statute. Yeah. You want to make sure that, you know, there's no prejudice. They, you know, nothing ran afoul of timeliness in that regard. Um, yeah, Matthew, thanks for pointing out. Matthew Kaufman's a, a federal practitioner, and you can get some really good federal discovery that you're just not going to get uh, in state court. They're just going to object to it. You're never going to get a judge to rule on it in time and give it to you in, in federal court. Yep. Give it to them. Hopefully so, that'll change now. Hopefully, we're since hopeful. There are, there's preliminary conference requirements now. There's meet and confer requirements. There are particular categories of things you have to meet and confer on, including electronic discovery. So, hopefully, <laughs> we'll yeah, see. Yeah. In its infancy, but I mean, certainly read those. You know, read those rules and hold your opponent's feet to the fire. And you know, I send meet and confer emails all the time saying. You know, per the changes in the uniform rules, we're required to do this, this, and that before. And then, you know, I'll often get proposed scheduling orders off to my adversaries before the first conference so that we can try to agree on it. Um, and, you know, to get scheduling orders entered at least. And, and then hopefully over time, we will actually start to see the courts enforcing those orders in a timely way. Fingers crossed. I know. Um, Carrie Lynn is saying that... Uh, there's a John Doe driver. She's saying, should we do a motion to oppose removal to federal court as his residency may defeat diversity jurisdiction? I'm understanding you correctly. You are uh, defending a case and the plaintiff is John Doe and you don't know, um, or there's a party uh, that's a John Doe and you don't know, perhaps, depending when you find that residency, it could defeat jurisdiction. Um, so, I think you need to get to the bottom of that. I would certainly call your adversary. They may just be placing John Doe as a placeholder uh, because they haven't identified all the parties. Um, but if you think that it could defeat, uh, defeat diversity, it's worth making some phone calls, speaking with your adversary, trying to find out their basis. Um, and then it's worth a shot. I think if it's already in federal court and removed, then you have to make a motion to dismiss it. If there's a motion to remove it from state court based on diversity, then they're going to have to really establish it um, to see what happens. And they're going to have to give some proof of that. And then you can push back. You have any other thoughts on that, Hadley, how to deal with that situation? 
Uh, Josh, uh, I have a trip and fall in Westchester. Good luck. Tough cases. Tough venue. Bringing an action against Amtrak. Even tougher. They're removing it to federal court. Yes, they do that. Uh, and they're saying it's an act of Congress. Uh, is it worth filing a notice to remand or just continue litigating in federal? Yeah, Amtrak, you're going to be in federal court. So you're stuck there, my friend. So just go for it. Um, all right. Matthew is chiming in with a lot of great stuff on federal practice. So if you do have questions, federal court, look at the Q&A. Matthew's given some great pointers. Thank you, sir. Um, all right. CPLR question. An accident occurs in New Jersey. Plaintiff resides in New York. Operator resides in Illinois. Owner is in Michigan. Does federal court have jurisdiction in New York? And if so, does New York statute of limitations apply? Hadley, I'm going to let you take this one. And Matthew, correct me if I'm wrong, but my answer is no. Uh, the it, You can file in Jersey and you can file in, if the operator is Illinois or Michigan, I believe you can file in either one of the uh, defendants, place where the defendant resides. Um, the only other caveat, sorry, I need to go back to the question. It just popped away from me. Uh, will a New York statute of limitations uh, apply? Well, that's going to be the million dollar question, right? And maybe you don't want the New York statute to apply in certain situations. So you're going to have to look at uh, choice of law provisions for whatever federal court you're in for that uh, district. And you're going to have to figure out what they're what their choice of law, you know, how they apply the different states' laws and what the choice of law provision is and make the best argument you can as to whatever statute you want to apply to apply. Sometimes it's somewhat clear-cut, other times not so clear-cut. I would agree with that. I do not believe you have uh, diversity to bring it in New York uh, because you don't have um, jurisdiction over the defendant. They're an out-of-state and the accident didn't happen in the state, so you can't pull them into the state. Uh, ultimately, that's I have found that's the easiest way to sort of sort these issues out because it gets very complex. So what you really want to think about is what right do we in New York have to bring that entity or person into our state? There has to be some connection. Uh, if they're driving and the accident happens in the state, you've got it because by being in the state, they avail themselves of it. But if it didn't happen in the state and they're not uh, don't have a principal place of business here, transact business here. Um, it's going to be really tough, and I, I don't think you'll you'll survive that. Okay, um, let's see what have we got here. Uh, Aaron, in a motor vehicle case, a single insurance company represents both drivers. Defendant driver is a hundred percent at fault. My client is zero. Any special considerations when one insurance company represents both drivers? So I'm not clear if you're saying it's the same policy or if two different policies. Um, but it's the same company. So we see that a lot, right? There's there's an owner, maybe a different operator, maybe it's two defendant cars. Uh, there's two defendants that have different policies, but it's Geico covering both of them. It really doesn't matter. I mean, usually they'll have different adjusters and they'll, they'll do it separately. Um, I've never found that it makes a difference. You either have one, it's how many policies you're dealing with that apply to your case. You either have one or more. And if it's one and they're covering everybody, that's your one. If you have more than one uh, and you have more coverage, then you're going to have more than one and you're going to have an individual claims rep usually assigned to um, each individual claim on behalf of that company. Um, all right. Federal venue. Is it proper, John is asking, uh, where the target defendant's corporate parent is sued solely to defeat diversity? 
Um, go ahead, Hadley. I mean, to defeat diversity or... So as yeah. long as... Yeah, I'm a, it's a little bit confusing. I see. So they want to stay in state court, I think, is what John is saying. So they're you're trying to keep it in state court. Uh, it happens frequently. Um, so it's not that surprising. And there's nothing wrong. I mean, that's that's how the law works. If they have a principal place of business, then they're stuck. So It's a parent company, though, right? So you're looking at if you've right, got a parent company that's somehow here in New York. Um, it's motion practice. Yeah. I mean, then you got to show that they're really not related. If you want to say that, if you're defending it and you want to say they're solely a holding company, they don't transact business through that. And But here's the thing. Um, you could file, I mean, you could have, I'm trying to think of how you get around it. Um, well, maybe not. Maybe not. I got to get creative and think about this for a little bit, but. Um, but yeah, you could, I mean, you could move to dismiss, I suppose, dismiss and remand. Yeah. Um, thank you all for the, the, um, the thumbs up and the comments that you're giving. I really enjoy that. I think that's why you're doing it. One of the great things about these CLEs is that we're a community. We're all here to help each other. Um, I don't know everything. Um, Hadley knows most. She knows what I don't know, but none of us know everything. And a lot of us have knowledge in specific areas that others don't. And so what helps us as attorneys is when we share the knowledge uh, and we help each other out to be better lawyers. And I have learned that over the last couple of years that we are a great community that's here to help each other. So I appreciate you all chiming in with these Q&As, sharing your thoughts, giving the feedback. Um, it's really helpful uh, to us in doing this. So let's take a look at some other stuff. Um, Mark is asking, does a tort analysis for choice of law apply if the insurance company enters as a plaintiff or does the insurance contract choice of law apply? So depending on the issue, um, the contract may deem itself, uh, you know, there may be a binding agreement as to uh, the, the choice of venue. Uh, and you would have to show that for some reason that's void or not valid. So certainly in like an SUM situation, uh, I had a situation where an accident happened in New York uh, and the SUM carrier was out of state and it was a, a state that had that state, the contract had the foreign state as the agreed upon venue for, for deciding in and litigating it. So, you know, you would have to show good reason that that choice of venue in the contract did not apply uh, in order to get around that. Um, so it's going to be the facts of the case in the, in the contract that you're looking at. All right. Um, David is asking, how do you locate excess insurance? So other than if someone's, and someone's kind enough, thank you, Chris, for saying that there's a safer website that has insurance information for trucks. So maybe it has it there. I'll check that out. But generally what we'll do is at the outset, you're going to ask in these letters we talked about, you're going to ask them to turn over to their insurance company. Take that phone call once you get a call from that adjuster, claims representative saying, yeah, I'm responding to the letter you sent to my insured. You need to ask them and you've put it in writing to them after the call, if not before the call, um, to identify whether or not there's excess coverage or umbrella coverage. And it's their duty to speak to the insured and, and make the 
those inquiries. And sometimes they have a hard time getting through to their insured. Sometimes you can't get that, but you, you ask everybody. Uh, sometimes somebody will have a private attorney who will call uh, and you'll deal with them. Or if it's a corporate entity, maybe they have a legal department. You could ask their legal representative. Ask everyone and anyone you can about umbrella or excess coverage. Send every letter asking about it. Then ultimately, when you get into litigation, then you get it. That's in your demand. Um, they are required in state and federal court to give you all policy information and not just the policy limits, uh, but the policies themselves, okay? So you're entitled to see the full primary umbrella excess policies that are applicable to identify all of them. And ultimately, that's how you get it. Do you have any other thoughts on that, Hadley, for getting? No, I just my point. I think it's a good idea to put it in writing always. So even if you pick up the phone, because you're, you know, phone conversations are kind of nice and when they can get stuff done, usually just shoot off an email after that phone conversation. Hey, great to talk to you. You're going to look into the, you know, as discussed, you're going to look into the excess cover, any excess coverage here. Just so that, you know, if you needed to show later that you were make, doing your due diligence on inquiries and the party wasn't honest for whatever reason or just didn't understand, you know, didn't understand what was being asked from you have a record that, yes, you asked for it all. Yep. Uh, Jim's asking a question about whether a city or town, how they're considered when you're looking at diversity jurisdiction. Have you run into that situation, Hadley, where you're talking about city or town in federal court? I have not, um, because usually my plaintiff is a New York plaintiff. So, and the city or town's in New York. Yep. The only time that I've had a case against, uh, again, if it's a state entity, it's court of claims. Uh, you can't bring that in federal court or state court. If it's a city agency, the only times that I've been able to bring or wanted to bring a case against the city is if you have a, a federal statute. For example, civil rights, uh, Section 1983 action, you know, if there's ever a federal uh, question. But on diversity, you generally don't see a municipal agency being brought in uh, or a government agency on diversity. Okay, um, Michael's asking, what's the obligation of primary policyholder to place a secondary or excess carrier on notice? Now with the new insurance law, plaintiff gets all the insurance, uh, but in litigation. Um, I'm not sure uh, if there is an obligation about that uh, prior to uh, litigation commencing, but certainly uh, the defense counsel has to, it's their duty to take reasonable steps to answer your demand and inquire as to excess carrier and put them on notice. Now, if technically they're not on notice, the lawyer, defense lawyer hasn't put them on notice, the insured hasn't put them on notice, and they disclaim um, they may have a valid basis for, for that. That's why you want to start sending letters to everybody so that you can say, no, 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 we told this and this is the, you know, they had to confirm that. And, we, you know, you, you, you've got to do what you can because the worst is if there is coverage and then there's a disclaimer. That's where your paper trail is going to come in real handy. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, hey, Hadley, Aaron is asking you a question. Yep, I just saw that. Bear with me for a second. Asking if possible, if you have a sample of a preservation letter or litigation yeah. hold letter, uh, maybe you can provide that to Michelle and she could send it to the attendees. I'd love a copy of that too. Yeah. Great. All right. Now, Leslie's asking, didn't Governor Hochul amend uh, disclosure for pol policies of insurance? Michelle, you want to jump in on that? 
I'm the least lawyerly lawyer uh, on the call here, but sure. Um, yes, there was legislation called the Comprehensive Insurance Disclosure Act that was signed by the governor yesterday or the day before, I think maybe Tuesday um, or Monday. Anyway, recently, and I think I think it was Tuesday. And um, the for Academy members, we drafted a sample demand um, for getting all of that insurance information. Um, and if you're an Academy member and you didn't see our email about it, just shoot us an email at info at trialacademy.org. If you want that sample um, demand letter, we can send that over to you. And if you're not yet a member, you should just join. Yeah, you get it. You get samples. You get stuff. You get Everybody good loves stuff. samples. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. Sure. Um, all right. So, uh, John, uh, John Ratchick, hey, what's going on? Thank you for your question. Is saying, how much time do you have to put plaintiff's own insurance carrier on notice for an SUM claim? Uh, and I see below that Michael saying within 90 days of issue join. I don't know if he's referring to Jonathan's question. Um, my understanding is that the policy provisions uh, control. So you have to look at your client's SUM policy that talks about providing notice. There are people that know a lot more about these coverage issues uh, than I and likely attending right now. If you know, please put that answer in. But Usually the language is within a reasonable time period upon being aware of the happening where the of the accident or of where the coverage uh, would trigger or potentially be involved. So you just want to do it as soon as possible. You know, that's why if you're waiting a year and you're underway with a case, you can run into problems. Um, okay. Uh, is it possible to bring a bad faith action against an SUM carrier? I think it is. Um, the circumstances have to be right. If they're not tendering a policy and you can show all the elements that there, there's no dispute as to liability, there's no dispute as to damages, uh, that their the damages clearly out uh, is beyond the value of the policy. I see no reason, at least under New York state law, why you couldn't bad faith them. Hadley? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So go for it. Unless I'm mistaken, my experience is that defense counsel and insurance carriers do not like to receive bad faith letters. That's why I send them out every chance I can. Because yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's funny. My defense counsel friends will say, oh, we don't, that doesn't, that doesn't bother us. We don't care about that. Yeah. But I, I, I find that hard to believe. And I actually, it, it triggers, yeah. A trial with a doctor who wanted to settle um, and the carrier wouldn't settle. So he had his own private attorney come in and basically put on the record before we had openings that uh, he was establishing grounds for a bad faith claim. So yeah. I, yeah. I do, you know, I think they're obligated to tell their insured that there's any risk on that. And I can't imagine they like having that conversation despite them telling me it doesn't phase them at all. Yeah, <laughs> just a, a quick primer, a two minute primer on bad faith. There's a lot of law out there. It's not easy to be successful in a bad faith action. Um, I believe my, my good friends over at Block and O'Toole did a great job in one and really fought it all the way and finally got it. But it's very hard to uh, be successful with a bad faith action. But the gist of it is this. The gist of it is if, if you send a letter to an insurance company saying, listen, your policy is $100,000. 
Our client was hospitalized for a year, had 10 surgeries, loss of income, everything else uh, was rear-ended. Uh, you've yet to tender it. Your failure to do so is bad faith. And you have to say that you are willing to accept the policy limits to settle the case. You can't tell them they're in bad faith, turn it over, and then keep suing and, and litigating. So there's two things. One, you say they're bad faith, that they're not tendering it. And the other is saying, we're going to accept it. So you'll do that in a case where it may be a million dollar policy. In your case, maybe worth 1.5 million or two, you think, and you want to put the pressure on. And then you put in that letter that you cite the law. I think it's Pavia or Padua. And there's other cases. If you look up bad faith that, uh, that, that stand for all this, then you say, I'm also advising you, uh, directing you that you need to notify your insured of our willingness to accept their policy limits, okay? Um, and your failure to do so is bad faith, and there's cases for that. So what that triggers is, is let's say you have Jane Smith, defendant driver of a car. She's got a $300,000 policy. She's a lawyer. She owns a nice home. She's got lots of things going on, has assets, uh, but someone got badly injured, and it could be a million-dollar case. That bad faith letter gets sent to her carrier saying, we'll take the 300 they need to tell Jane Smith that. And Jane Smith then can say, listen, I don't want to worry about getting a judgment against me for more than this. If they're willing to take the policy, I want you to settle. And if Jane Smith is getting good advice, she's going to have a lawyer or herself send a letter saying, if you don't settle this case, I'm going to say you're in bad faith and you're not doing your fiduciary duty to me. You're insured. So then what happens? Assuming you lay all this groundwork, there's bad faith letters flying left and right. The time of trial comes, the private lawyer shows up like Hadley just said happened in her case. I've had that happen too. They put a record, they put a statement on the record before the jury comes in saying, we just want to put on the record, we want to settle, we will consent for our policy limits. And if the carrier doesn't, we're going to move to hold them in bad faith. So what does that mean? That means then if Hadley went to trial in that case and got a seven-figure verdict and the policy was only 250 then what that means is, is that the insurance company, if the groundwork is properly laid, the insurance company will ultimately have to pay that judgment beyond the 250. It could be a $10 million judgment and it comes out of their pocket. So the reason bad faith is strong is because insurance companies, oh, our policy is only 250. That's all we got to worry about. You think you're going to get more than that and go to trial? Go do it. Then we'll talk settlement. That's all we got to worry about. But if you've bad faith them and everything's been laid properly for a bad faith claim after that judgment, then they've got to be worried because they're exposed for well beyond that. Hadley? We have a, a agreed when we have a, a request now for the sample of the bad faith letter. So it sounds like you have a good one of those. If you can get it to Michelle, if you're comfortable with that, then uh, she can circulate them. Yeah. Bad faith letters are great. Um, to circle around. All right. Um, I, can, I can add um, that. And there was something else that Hadley was going to send, but whatever you guys send me, I'll just add it to the CLE materials for today's course. So give us like a day to add it in. And then you'll go, if everybody goes back to the same link and just hits refresh. And I think it was trialacademy.org slash claims for today was the short link. So it'll be on there eventually. Give us a day or so. We'll resend it around too. If you're joining us today by a podcast, the second attendance verification code is POD465. Again, that's P 
D465. And uh, I want to thank Hallie again. Thank you for joining me. Uh, very happy to have you on always. And uh, to all of our uh, women uh, in the academy and in our profession, you know, let's celebrate you this month. That's what it's all about. And happy to be a part of that. Um, also, uh, if you've missed anything, you can catch up again at the New York State Academy of Trawlers website. If you haven't listened to my podcast and you liked this program and you like these CLEs that uh, the, the series that I've been doing, um, I think you'll really enjoy the podcast. There's a lot of great, valuable stuff. So check it out. Uh, go to the mentor ESQ. Follow me on Instagram. Always posting some interesting stuff and some personal stuff. You can see what I like to do when I'm not doing this. And um, if you're listening to the podcast, thank you for being a listener. Uh, we have people from all over the world actually listening, uh, from Ghana, from Australia, from the Philippines, and all over the state. So it's pretty cool. So thank you for listening. Please like it, share share the podcast with others, and uh, look forward to seeing you all next month. We're going to talk about how you take your five and six figure cases and make them seven figures with having the right experts and knowing how to work it in these catastrophic injury cases. <laughs>